You know, when we ask players, kids at camp, do coaches favor players? And they all say no, because they want to say the politically correct thing. Yes, we absolutely, we favor the good listeners. We favor the hard workers. We favor the guys that are coachable. We favor the guys that shoot well, pass well. Yes, we absolutely play favorites. And so getting kids to understand, like at some level, if you're not getting what you want on a team, figuring out now, what does your coach want? Because I say that to our players all the time. You want better things in life, give your boss what he or she wants. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome University of St. Thomas head coach, Johnny Tower. Coach Tower is here today to discuss the unique transition from coaching Division Three to Division One, and what wins at both levels intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and we talk over eager parents and teaching split cuts during the always fun start sub or sit costa rica spain italy australia south africa we're excited to announce our newest partnership with the world leader in international sport tours beyond sports founder and former college and pro basketball coach josh erickson his team of former athletes have built the go-to company for coaches looking to take their programs abroad. From the travel and accommodations to excursions and service learning opportunities, Beyond Sports does it all. For more information and to learn why more than 650 universities have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com and tell them Slapping Glass sent you. And now... Please enjoy our conversation with Coach Johnny Tower. Coach, thanks so much for making some time. I know you got camps going on, you're flying around recruiting and whatnot. We appreciate you spending some time with us today. Hey, thank you, Dan Patrick. I've been a huge fan of your guys. The show is one of my staples. What you do for basketball is just incredible. And so I'm grateful to be on here. Really excited to talk hoops with you guys. Thank you, Coach. We thank appreciate you. that. Coach, want to dive in with this. And for those that don't know the story of the program too much, real quick, you guys had such a tremendous run of success at the D3 level. And then a few years back, your conference kicked you out of the conference and you had to make the tough transition from D3 right to Division One. But that first season, like we've talked about before, you started all the same D3 guys that whole first year. They played the majority of the minutes, all the minutes actually. And you were able to win 10 games at the division one level that first year. And also the second year as you're transitioning, we'll get into that as well. You still had a large majority of division three players. And we want to start with your thoughts on what went into winning at both of those levels that translated over from the D3 to D1 level that you found as you were transitioning really helped on or off the court. Yeah, it's been a fascinating kind of experiment, right? That when we initially made the jump, I played Division Three at St. Thomas from 91 to 95. And so, you know, when we talk about our Division Three guys that helped us make the transition, we reminded them frequently they're no longer Division Three players. And I don't really like labels, right? You're a basketball player. I've always felt like the elite Division Three basketball players and teams can compete at an incredibly high level, although we didn't have a lot of data that would test that necessarily. Some individual cases, the Duncan Robinsons of the world, right? But not entire teams. And so winning at any level is really tough. I mean, Division Three, I loved it. We had a good amount of success, both at the national and the conference level. 
And then making this jump really was historic. There were a lot of programs who had gone D2 to D1. There were coaches who had changed schools from D3 to D1, but there was not a program that had gone D3 to D1 that we could look to. And for a confluence of reasons, as you alluded, Dan, we ended up starting the same five guys that six months earlier were playing Division Three basketball and had played D3 ball for three and four years. And the same five guys are now playing a full Division One schedule. And I think the two things that we really tried to double down on, and this was important, the first was our culture. You know, my background as a social psychologist, my research in intrinsic motivation, that I think has permeated our culture for years. And it affects how we recruit, it affects how we practice, it affects how we play. And so we doubled down on that. And we said, listen, if we're going to do this, and we know we're going Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. The reality is we were favored in most games in Division Three, not all, but many of them. We suddenly became the underdog in every Division One game. And so let's embrace that journey. Let's not try to be somebody who we aren't. And let's let intrinsic motivation and our trust in one another and in our culture really rule the day. And then I think the second thing was being who we were, which is an up-tempo team that shoots a lot of threes and takes care of the ball. In that first year, I think we scored over 75 points a game. Again, we made the most threes we've ever made. Now, some of that was Darwinian, where we weren't getting a lot of layups. So natural selection told us we better shoot a lot of threes. And we also led the nation in Division One and fewest turnovers. So we had done that before in Division Three. We almost broke the all-time Division One record that first year. In large part, our schemes weren't any different, but our guys knew we had zero chance to win if we didn't take care of the ball. And so that, to me, was one of the proudest moments I've had as a coach. Like As much as any national championship or conference championship team, that team of guys that won 10 games that first year, to me, what they embraced every single day, it was unbelievably inspirational. Those were the two things I think we doubled down on, our culture and intrinsic motivation, and then taking care of the ball and being a team. I really want to circle back to the motivation stuff in just a minute, but I actually like to ask you first about the turnovers and fundamentally, I guess, what you thought about teaching with your players, because going from D3 to D1, they didn't turn it over at the D3 level, but now you're facing bigger, stronger, longer athletes and things like that, whether it's in the post or pick and roll situations, trapping, whatever it is. And what translated from a don't turn it over fundamental standpoint from one level to the next? We get asked that question a lot because historically we've been good. I always say tongue in cheek, and this is true though. Number one, you better recruit skilled players, right? When people want to know, how do you not turn it over? The reality is you better have guys who can pass and catch and they're smart and they're tough and they're coachable. So it starts there. I think the second thing, and I was concerned how we'd be able to run offense and certainly some teams made it very difficult on us, but I think our guys' acute awareness of who they were as players, you know, to thine own self be true, like know who we are and embrace that. So we probably were a little less aggressive, right? In part because we aren't getting a lot of drives into the paint for layups. We didn't have a prominent post player who's just going to dominate you on the block. We had guys that were crafty, but I think we tried to mitigate some of our height and our quickness disadvantages by the way we spaced the floor, passed the ball, and shot the ball. And so it was a unique group of players. I don't know that just anybody could do that. Those five guys really knew each other well. And it wasn't just those five. Obviously, we played far more than that their understanding of our culture and who we were. And make no mistake about it, we also lost 12 straight games that year at one point in time. So some of the stats from that year are remarkable. To me, that was the greatest pressure test of our culture we've ever had, right? There are winning streaks we had that were a lot of fun in Division Three. In Division One, we've had big wins, but to lose 12 straight games and for me to know walking in the locker room that never were those guys going to fracture, never were they going to point fingers at one another. They weren't happy. They didn't like to lose. Those five guys had lost eight games in three years total. So think about that. They lost eight games in three years. They lost more than eight games in three weeks when we were in the midst of that losing streak. 
But to know that they were going to stick together, that to me was the greatest test of our culture that are we doing things that are sustainable at the division one level? On that note, what is it about your culture that you feel you do well that help sustain your success or keep your guys engaged during, you know, like I said, that eight game losing streak? Again, number one, I go back to who you recruit. There's a lot of great coaches out there. We are not miracle workers. And frankly, I think the selection process through who you recruit, so you can see over the top of my head on this podcast, the UST University of St. Thomas, we have an acronym USST, unselfish, skilled, smart, and tough. And so those are four qualities we talk about a lot. Like after you get through somebody's moral character and their academic kind of motivation and pedigree, those are two non-negotiables. But after that, those are the four words we talk about a lot. And if you recruit unselfish, skilled, smart, tough guys, they're going to make the pass and not force a play that's not there. They're going to have the skill to do it. They're going to be judicious and smart in how they operate. And they're also going to be tough-minded against, like you alluded that first year and even last year, a lot of athletes who are bigger, stronger, faster than our guys. And so that, to me, we try to put a premium on that. Now, you can have anything you want in life. You can't have everything you want. So whatever you prioritize in recruiting, you may be giving up somewhere else. And probably over the years, even at the Division Three level, we were a pretty small team. Like If you looked at us in Division Three. We had one dunk in 29 games in our second to last year in Division Three. One dunk in 29 games, but that was because we were playing a bunch of guys who could pass, dribble, catch, and shoot. And I think that approach we've tried to carry through at the Division One level. And early on, at least, I'm really pleased how that has translated. You mentioned tough mindset. And at the beginning, you said when you made the change from D3 to D1, you went from being favorites to underdogs. So I'm just curious with this tough mindset, the mental component that you found in your players or just what you learned about going from being a favorite to an underdog in terms of mentality. I'll be honest with you, not just the players, but the coaches, right? That if you think about the players are in a relatively short window, this will be my 24th year coaching at St. Thomas. And so while I'd love to tell you it was easy, my wife would tell you that year I got an ulcer, I had vertigo, and I don't know how many of those were attributed to stress and how many are just me getting older. The reality of losing is that it's not fun. I don't care if you're at summer basketball camp. I don't care if you're in the NBA. Losing's hard. I go back to, I think we were blessed. Like there were some people around the country saying, well, who are the transfers you're going to bring in? Who's going to play? And while none of us knew how our guys making the transition from D3 to D1 would do, I did know that they were going to be those things. They were going to be tough and they were going to be together. And when you think about what are the things that break teams down, trust is number one. If a team has trust, you have a chance to be great. It doesn't ensure you're going to be great, but you have a chance. And so probably those three things without trying to have an alliteration, which we do far too often, but trust, toughness, and togetherness, those guys who had made that jump from division three, they were really embracing it. We had two of them come back, Ryan Lindbergh and Bert Hedstrom for their fifth years, and they paid tuition. They weren't on scholarship and they paid tuition to go to grad school. And both of them had unbelievable full-time jobs lined up already. So when you start to think about their commitment to the program, and I think also just their excitement, right? Those two and Anders Nelson and Riley Miller had started four years together, basically. And I think they looked at it. Hey, COVID took away a chance to win a national championship in 2020, again in 2021. But now here they got to do something that's never been done before, make a jump from D3 to D1, and particularly with many of the same players. And so they really did embrace it. They looked at every one of those 30 games like this is our Super Bowl. And let's go make the most of it. On that trust, was it an active decision by you and your staff? Let's roll with our five guys or the majority of D3 guys versus, yeah, we got to get some transfers in here. We got to recruit over these guys or bring in new guys. I'd say some of both. That's a great question, Patrick. It was sort of serendipity the way it worked out. I did not think in June of that year we were going to start the same five guys. And those five guys would tell you, like three of them, we told you have a chance to be on the team, but I don't know if you'll play any minutes. 
at all. And they trusted that and they jumped at that opportunity, which I'll be always so grateful to them because they wanted to be a part of it. But they also had to know you've got door number one with this unbelievable job lined up. Door number two is you get to play division one basketball, but we don't know if we're going to win any games and we don't know if you're going to play. And so for those guys to take that leap of faith, but again, you come back to trust. We had been together several years and the trust built up over losing only eight games over three years and then saying, all right, we're going to go through some tough stuff together. We did bring in four or five transfers that year. And for a litany of reasons, some of them ended up going someplace else and didn't come here. Some of them suffered some injuries. So there was a bunch of stuff that happened. So it was not necessarily by design, but as the off season sort of unfolded, we started seeing like, this is probably going to be the same group we roll with. I think our guards, Anders Nelson and Riley Miller, who were both division three, all Americans, Those were two guys that we sort of, I said, we're not recruiting guards that year in the transfer market because these two guys have earned this opportunity, what they've done. And I think both of them showed that they could not just compete, but really excel at the division one level. We've added a couple of great growth opportunities for SG plus members recently, as we've once again teamed up with Obradoro assistant Gonzalo Rodriguez to offer unique small group mentorships. Coach Rodriguez has over 30 years of coaching experience and more than a decade coaching in Spain's top division, the ACB. Both a one-month training camp and year-long mentorships are available, covering everything from offensive and defensive tactics and installation, practice design, finding priorities, and much, much more. To become a member and learn more about these opportunities, visit slappingglass.com today. I'd love to pivot just a little bit, go back to something you mentioned and we've talked about is that your past work, your PhD in social psychology and specifically in intrinsic motivation, which I'll let you explain the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic. But I just would love to dive in for a second on intrinsic motivation, what it is that you've studied and what it is that you take from your PhD program that you use daily in actual practical coaching. One, growing up, I was never the most talented player, right? I was a good player was on a state championship team in high school for basketball and baseball, but five of the guys I played with in baseball got drafted in major league. But I was not one of those guys who got drafted. I wasn't on anybody's draft board. I wasn't recruited by division one schools. I ended up having a division three career that we made the final four. Like we had an unbelievable run, but throughout all that, I think I came to appreciate you know, sort of being in the middle. I'm not saying I was average all the time, right? But I was in the middle of a talent base where I could start to see, and I've always been curious and hence the interest in psychology of why sometimes the most prodigiously talented athletes aren't that motivated. And then you see the other gym rats and you guys probably saw this at Chapman where sometimes the guy on the JV who's not getting any time on the JV is still in the gym every night for two hours. And that just fascinated me. And so I knew I wanted to go into coaching, but I also knew I wanted to have something else, right? Some skill set. For some guys, it's going into video. For some guys now, it's analytics. For me, I thought if I can go into psychology and really understand what makes people tick, because at the end of the day, the special sauce to me is if you look even at the highest levels in the NBA, Does height matter? Sure. But a lot of them are really tall. Does speed matter? Sure. But their elite quickness, what's the difference? A lot of times it's between the years and understanding who is it that's going to be toughest during times of adversity? Who's going to keep working in the summers when you have a ton of freedom and a lot of money? And so intrinsic motivation, simply put, is just a joy in taking part in an activity for its own sake without thoughts of money, praise, prestige, accolades, et cetera. And so that has always been for me something that in recruiting, looking for players who do love the game. Now, they, again, have to be good people and good students, but I think that permeates our culture. And I don't think if you hung around our program a lot, 
I probably intentionally don't talk about intrinsic motivation or even psychology very often because that's what they think of me, right? And the freshmen come in thinking because I've got this background in psychology, I can read their minds, which if I could read their minds, we would never miss shots or have turnovers. The reality is it's more about create a culture that fosters intrinsic motivation. But before we even get there, we got to get guys who love basketball and they want to be a part of something special. And I think where we're at in our journey in Division One is such a unique story that there are a lot of guys who are looking at this saying, so hold on, I get a chance to play maybe a little bit more early in my career and be at this great school, play a style that's fun and up-tempo and to truly do something that hasn't been done before. And so the intrinsic motivation piece is huge, but I think it's probably more implicit than explicit if you were to follow us around. Diving in on the intrinsic versus extrinsic for a second, I'm sure in your career, you've coached great players that have kind of a balance of yes they want to win but there's also things whether it's playing time scoring points or whatever it is name in the paper now you're division one level and there's other types of extrinsic things that come into play and how you have dealt with those kinds of players to try to either mold them or fit them into your program somehow three parts to that one probably the greatest aha moment i had in coaching first year as a division three assistant, my head coach, Steve Fritz, who I played for, tells me I'm going to run the defense. And most of my teammates thought that was laughable because I was an abysmal defender. And the idea that I was running the defense to most of my teammates and I'm only six years out of college, I think they were worried about the state of the program at that point. (laughs) But we had a player and he was really, really gifted on offense. And defense is probably not something that most guys are intrinsically motivated to do anyways. But I had tried everything with him and every motivational trick a month into practice blowing the whistle, stopping, yelling, running sprints, having him sit while the team ran sprints, throwing him out of practice, which I never do. But it was like, we got to get this guy to defend. And he came into my office one day and I just said, listen, we got to figure this out. This isn't working. And he was a really nice young man. He said, well, no coach, what's going on? I started talking about defense and I didn't want to have to do all the things that I was doing to extrinsically motivate him. And he kept saying, I understand. I got you. I understand. It was real matter of fact. And after about the fifth time, I started getting a little frustrated. I'm like, I don't think you do understand. And he looked at me, he's like, and he was the nicest kid. And he looked at me and he snaps back. He's like, coach, you don't understand. And I'm like, hold on a second. What do you mean? I don't understand. He said, coach, what you don't understand. And he paused and I think thought about how to diplomatically say this. And he said, coach, I'm lazy. I hate defense and I'm never going to like defense. So all the things you're doing, you do have to do them all to me. And I don't care. I know that I need. And so That was this light bulb moment, right, for the young intrinsic motivation researcher who was a little naive and idealistic, thinking everybody's just going to love to run through a brick wall. No, everybody's not. So that's number one. Number two, and I'll go through these more quickly. Number two, I think, is recruiting guys that you see a joy on their face. But the reality is everyone has both intrinsic and extrinsic. It's not an either or proposition. I think about it more on a two-dimensional scale. And so it's more about getting guys to enjoy. You guys have worked at jobs before where you know the salary. And if you'd really dislike the job when you're in high school or college, you figure out how many minutes does it take to make a dollar? What am I making per minute? 18 cents. I don't like this job. And you count your way through the day, right? Though I think it was called Clock Watchers or some movie back in the 90s. And so it's our job to create an environment that isn't going to be a clock watching one, right? If they're looking at the clock in the gym, I'm doing something wrong in practice. But I think the other part is accepting that everybody is motivated by different things and then trying to kind of blend those, right? So our guys want to play professional basketball. That's a great thing. Getting them to see that, okay, but all conference awards and points per game, frankly, are not what professional scouts are looking for. They're looking at efficiency in scoring, assist to turnover ratio, team success. Are you coachable? And so I think it's trying to blend the extrinsic and intrinsic because the reality is there's nothing wrong with extrinsic motivation. 
but it does get dangerous if that's what fuels you because then you need more and more and more, whereas the intrinsic motivation almost perpetuates itself and you refuel it every day. When it comes to team motivation, so we were kind of talking about player motivation a little bit, now maybe branching out a little bit when you're trying to motivate a team, and this goes back, ties into our whole conversation, but going back a little bit to your winning 30 plus or, you know, 30 games a year, at division three level, and then your first year, huge success at division one, winning 10, but trying to motivate them to win, but also just to you know, play within your culture and whatnot. And I guess now branching it out to the group aspect of motivation. Well, I think building teams, to me, it's the greatest challenge in coaching, right? There's a lot of similarities. I've always felt that coaching and teaching are very similar, that coaches can learn a lot from teachers and teachers can learn a lot from coaches. Oftentimes, coaches are amazing at building teams, but in a classroom, we're not necessarily always that great. It's more individualistic. And I think teachers can learn from that. Coaches, on the other hand, I think are notoriously pretty good at building teams, but not always great at the educational component and really thinking about these 18 to 22-year-olds is how am I helping them kind of navigate their journey, not just on the basketball court in life. And that sounds cliche, but that is our job. I think one of the greatest benefits of playing college athletics, I think you guys are an example of this, the teammates and friendships and bonds that you have and that you form in college, oftentimes those end up being your closest friends. And that's not always easy to see as an 18-year-old, right? Because you don't know these guys that well. So oftentimes as an 18-year-old, you're feeling disconnected because you were the big fish in a small pond at high school. And everybody knew you and all of a sudden you come to college and frankly, nobody on campus knows you and your teammates don't necessarily even know you. And so I think building teams is really, really complicated. It's like a blend of a chemistry experiment, a sociology experiment, a psychology experiment. And you're doing all of these things at once, knowing that we've got 15 guys on our team. They have goals. And I know going into the year, not all 15 are going to reach their individual goals, right? In terms of playing time points, et cetera. Frankly, if everybody's content at the end of the year, we probably didn't have a very good year because our goals, our aspirations weren't high enough. We do talk about this a lot. So I said, I don't talk a lot about intrinsic motivation, but we do talk about team and our goals for our players. Individual growth is a huge part of that. Team growth is another part, but getting them to see the big picture that at some point in life, the ball does stop bouncing. And when it does, if you've created genuine relationships and friendships and connections, those are going to serve you in a myriad of ways that you don't know when you're 18 to 22. But you guys know this. I know this. I think about my life over the last 28 years since I graduated from St. Thomas, most of the really great times and a lot of the toughest times I've been surrounded by my teammates. And so that, to me, trying to paint that bigger picture for them on a daily basis, then you get down to the nuance of, okay, how do we play? What do we value? We value passing a lot. Like When we talk about recruits, if a guy doesn't pass it well, we're going to be sort of hesitant. Doesn't mean he always makes the right decision yet, but can a guy see, does he have the visual acuity to be a really good passer and is he going to be coachable? And so that's a long-winded answer, but building teams to me is the most fascinating part of our job because every year you can get tired of teaching pick and roll defense. You can get tired of teaching shooting form, but it's hard if you're coaching young men, in this case, individuals and building a team every day is a new challenge. And so that's the part that to me is just beautiful about our profession. When building a team and setting team goals or trying to mold the players to fit into the team goals, do you spend the time in, let's say, before season to learn each player's individual goals? They're not all going to achieve them, but is it important for you to know them so you can then help kind of mold, shape, and develop the team goals? That's interesting, Patrick, because I'm by nature, I'm quantitative. All my aptitude tests as a kid said I should go into actuarial science. Unfortunately, I didn't know what actuarial science meant. I wasn't as good in my English classes. And so I didn't go into that, but I love numbers. Yet when talking with players, I probably stray away from numbers just because I think 
going back to intrinsic motivation, when you're thinking about numbers a lot, it impedes your freedom on the court. And that's true individually and collectively, right? So we don't talk about turnovers during a game ever. It's not like we're saying, guys, we've got five turnovers. Our goal is to have nine. We got a problem. I've coached some guys over the years where they're shooting well, and then they dip below some standard that they think defines a good shooter. Let's say it's 40% from three. And all of a sudden you can see in their head, they're trying to make five shots in one, which is impossible, right? And so I rarely talk with players about, I'd say, quantifiable goals, but more about their development and getting them to see, here are some metrics that if you're in this ballpark, good things are going to happen to you, both in your experience in college and then beyond college. I do think it's dangerous because so many things happen during the course of a season that are unpredictable. We won a decade in Division Three, and during that time, we won 10 straight conference titles, two national titles, and not one guy averaged 15 points a game for us in a season over a 10-year period. And that was not by design. Some of it is probably how I like to coach. Some of it is the depth that we had, but some of it was also that our players didn't have, I want to score 18 points a game and be an All-American. We didn't have very many All-Americans, frankly, because we had a lot of balanced scoring and a lot of really good unselfish players. So I think I talk with them about their goals, but it's more about, are you growing? And it's so easy in today's culture, I think, for players to want to speed things up. And oftentimes those quantifiable goals, I think, create sort of unrealistic. We do do this at the start of the season, ask players how many minutes they want to play, how many points they want to score. We ask them that once and we show them that, well, that would involve 400 minutes of playing time. We score 215 (laughs) points and we'll be the greatest team in the history of college basketball. And then they sort of chuckle and they realize like, hey, we've all got individual goals. But again, I go back to that mantra, you can have anything you want in life. You can't have everything. If you want to be the leading scorer and be an All-American and win every game, well, there aren't many guys in the country that do all of those things. So let's just be a great teammate. Value the ball, value your teammate. Those are the other two things I come back to all the time. We talked at the beginning of this conversation just quickly about your offensive style and that not much really changed with your transition. I just like to flip it to defense and if anything changed or what you learned again in this, like what wins when you make a jump from leagues levels. That's an interesting question. I would say, yes, probably more changed defensively. I'm really fortunate. I got a great staff. Mike Maker is our associate head coach. He recruited Duncan Robinson to Williams. Actually, he was the division three coach then who recruited Duncan and then he left for Maris division one head job. And so we're really fortunate to have him on our staff at St. Thomas, his wife, Erica, and my wife, Chancey graduated from St. Olaf College together the same year. And Mike and I coached against each other in Division Three. kind of how two worlds collide, but he's incredible offensively, worked with John Beeline at West Virginia. Much of what we run stems from me falling in love with West Virginia's teams back in 2005, 2006, 2007, when I was a young assistant. On the defensive end, Kenny Lowe played at Purdue, was the two-time defensive player of the year in the Big Ten, and Cameron Rundles, who played at Wofford and led them to back-to-back national tournaments. They run our defense. And I think over the last two years, like if you look at our defensive numbers the first year, there were 358 teams in the country that year. We were 357 or 358 in a lot of categories. And that was not through a lack of effort. It was truly, it was just, we were not able to guard individually, just our quickness. We were not able to rebound very well. So that year, I'd say we had to play far more conservatively. Division three, typically we were up-tempo. We like to press. We wanted as fast a game as possible. And we still do that offensively in division one. But I think we've had to mitigate some of those athletic areas. Last year, we brought in a recruiting class with some really good size. And so I think we're back to playing a little more normally defensively. But, you know, the game, if you watch high school, college, the NBA, I think what changes is more vertical defense and horizontal defense, right? Certainly the length of players and the spacing, but the court doesn't change. It's more the three-dimensional. Some of the lob dunks that we gave up that first year, there was no way we were going to stop those one-on-one. So it was more what we did two or three steps before that. 
to try to figure out because once that ball was in the air, they were catching at 12 feet and we weren't getting to 12 feet. And that's no knock on anybody. It's just the reality of it. So yeah, I think defensively just trying to figure that out. And then the other part is I do think as we transition from division three to division one, and we do recruit more athletic players. And again, I say that is no knock on the guys that I talked about earlier. But as we do, our ability to switch more things, our ability to defensive rebound, like the certain things that we had to play a little closer to the vest and still do a little bit, I think that will open up over the next several years because the way we play on offense is the way we'd like to play on defense, which is really fast and free and up-tempo. Well, vertical versus horizontal defense. I liked how you said that. It was more vertical, and you guys were probably at that more horizontal what were maybe some of the tactical things you thought about so that the horizontal defense could win out over trying to play vertical defense? Yeah, and it's not easy, right? Because at the end of the day, it's like as the stakes get higher in anything, you're going to win if you're able to throw that ball above the rim. You got a guy and go get it. But I think there were certain things that we would pressure the ball maybe more than we should in certain actions or even baseline out of bounds. Certain things that we changed the way we guarded baseline out of bounds to just take away lobs where we said, if we have to live with a decent jump shot from them, on these actions or these out-of-bounds plays, we have to do that because otherwise we're going to give up lobs at the rim. And so that would be one example that comes quickly to mind. I think the second one is just knowing what you're willing to live with. And so there were times where we did switch more screens that first year and then just fronted the post and overhelped from the backside with the idea that we're just not going to let them catch it. We're going to make it difficult to catch. Now that led us to getting beat up on the defensive glass a little bit more too. So there were no easy answers. But again, I go back to trust. Our players all knew that and they understood it. So they weren't not like they were pointing at our six foot six post player, Parker Bjorklund, saying, why didn't you go get that lob? It's like, well, because their seven foot five center for Roberts did. And I think that's some of what we've gone through. But really pleased if you look at our defensive numbers from year one to year two, the improvement on virtually every metric was really, really good. That to me is more important. It's not where we are right now. Are we trending in the right direction? We made big strides from year one to year two. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, this has been awesome so far. Thanks for all your thoughts there. We could keep going and going, but we want to transition now to a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so maybe those listening for the first time, we'll give you three options here on a topic, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one. We'll discuss from there. So coach, if you're all ready, we'll dive into this first one. Let's go. This first question has to do with, and you have written a book in the past on parents in youth sports and them potentially being overeager or whatnot or over-involved. And so this first start sub sit has to do with why parents become over-involved in their kids' lives in the first place. The start here would be the main reason that you think that they become so over-involved. So start sub or sit, option one is unrealistic expectations about their kids' skill set. Option two is a lack of trust in the coaching. And option three is, we wrote, just blinding love for their children. That's a great question. I'll start pretty unequivocally from that list of three, the unbridled love they have for their kids. I'm going to sub expectations and I'll sit trust of coach. 
those are great options. The first one, love. That's the reason I wrote the book, honestly. So why less is more for WASPs, W-O-S-P, well-intentioned, over-involved sports parents. That is sort of, I had this triangulation of my research and intrinsic motivation, my teaching, my coaching, and then having young kids. Once I had young kids and I started looking around at two-year-old t-ball games and three-year-old softball games and parents screaming, and I'm like, what are we doing here? And then I'd go to camp and I'd have some parents who would tie their seven-year-old shoes for them and basically hold their hand and they were kind of overprotective. And then you'd see parents screaming at umpires at youth baseball games. And so I was seeing all these things in my life that we all love sports. We all know what good sports can do for us. And when you ask parents, and we've done surveys of this, what do you hope your kid gets out of athletics? And they will say things like character development, discipline, teamwork, unselfishness, learning how to compete, all of these things. And yet when you ask coaches, what are the emails you get complaining about? The two words we hear over and over, and Dan and Patrick, you know what I'm going to say, playing time. It's remarkable. So parents, and I say that, I juxtapose those because the title of the book, I do believe most parents who are involved are really well-intentioned. And we have thousands of studies from psychology that shows that neglectful parenting is not a good solution. But the other end of the continuum, being overly involved, it's not as bad as being neglectful, but it's bad in a different way because now all of a sudden, are the kids learning how to actually navigate for themselves? And so I do believe, and maybe I'm a little naive, but I do believe that most parents' intentions are good, but they don't like, we don't, and I have four kids, we do not like seeing our kids in pain. And that's a natural evolutionary reaction to saying, how do we help our kids survive? We don't want them in pain. The problem is youth sports is actually a vehicle that can provide, if done right, an adequate amount of pain for kids to work through in a safe way and learn lessons that they're going to need when they're 22 years old. That's the biggest motivation for writing that book was, I think we need to get back to that. How do we provide kids with the learning and the wins and the losses? Because I know the three best lessons I ever learned in sports were incredibly painful, and yet those stick with me to this day and affect how I live my life. Coach, before we get to the start of SIT, if you're comfortable sharing one of those experiences that led to some change for you? Yeah, freshman year in high school, Randy Metzel, nicest guy ever. He's still at the same high school, Creighton Durham Hall, and we're now 36 years later. I was a freshman, played for him, started on the freshman team. I was probably 5'9", 106 pounds. Probably the varsity coach never thought I'd play on the varsity. I could really shoot the ball. And Mr. Metzel, at the end of my freshman year, came up to me at an open gym, and he said, you know, you're the best shooter in the school. And I was this shy freshman, and I didn't want to take the compliment. And so I'm sitting there saying, no, I don't think I am. He's like, yeah, you are. That kid's all state, all conference. You're a better shooter than all of them. And I'm feeling kind of proud. And then the nicest guy I knew counters that by saying, but if you don't get stronger and faster and tougher, you'll never wear a varsity uniform here ever. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because I love basketball more than anything. I went home and for about three days, I felt sick to my stomach thinking, why is he lying to me? Why is he being mean to me? Why? And finally, at some point, I said, wait, this is the nicest guy I've ever met. Like he would apologize to us when we had to run sprints because he said we should be grateful we could run. I still remember these practices as a 14-year-old. And so at some point, three days later, I realized he's telling me what I need to hear. I don't like it, but it's the truth. And it completely changed the way I worked in basketball for the next three years. Like I alluded to earlier, we ended up winning a state championship. I'm the captain of that team as a senior. I know I would not have been there without him telling me that, but that was really, really painful. And yet, if you trust somebody, I go back to that word again, I trusted him that what he's telling me is what I need to hear. That would be one of those examples. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. And I'd love to kind of go back to your three answers. And obviously, these are all 
difficult types of parents in their own right. And I guess just your learnings over the years on whatever it is that makes them become over-involved, how you as a coach navigate that relationship as you're coaching their son or daughter. And every level is different, right? I mean, grade school is different than high school. I coached AAU basketball for five years when I was a division three coach and coached my son and a bunch of his friends. And so that was an interesting experience for me, even just seeing the world of AAU basketball at the 13U level and the 15U level and 17U and how different those are. Because honestly, 13, 14, 15, you see parents and most are pretty good. But 16 and 17U, and I'm not talking about the kids I coach, just the teams and the culture you start seeing kids expecting to be recruited. So all of a sudden you go from the intrinsic to the extrinsic. At 13, yeah, you want to play, you want to have fun, you want to win, but you're not thinking, is this college coach coming to watch me play? Why aren't there more college coaches watching me? And so I think for parents, we have a system which is, it's pretty messy. Early on, I think parents go into it and they want their kids to have fun playing sports. The old adage that what's the most common comment from a parent when he drops or she drops their kid off at a sporting event? Have fun. Then they get in the car and they say, how'd you do? And so think about that. You go from wishing you a great experience to basically saying, did you win? Did you make baskets? Did you score whatever? So I think that's part of it. I also think it's a complicated web because when you start thinking about cognitive dissonance is when we start to justify our actions and we can oftentimes get in really big rationalization traps through the process of dissonance. And when you think about time and money, Those are two huge things that we have to justify in our lives, right? If we spend a lot of money on a car, we are going to justify liking that car. We spend a lot of time with a friend, we're going to justify, I must really like this person. Otherwise, why would I spend that much time? Combine those two things and think about the amount of time and money that parents put into youth sports. And most of us don't go into it when we have young kids recognizing like, this is going to seem like another full-time job, right? When you talk to parents and not just travel for AAU ball, but just a lot of times you're driving across town and there's a doubleheader for baseball. So you leave work a little early, 45 minutes in traffic, two games and your kid might get four at bats and they get walked in three of them. And then you drive home and you're like, what just happened to that seven hours? And now you multiply that by 100 days a year by six years. And at the culmination of that, it makes sense that a parent might think, okay, what's the payoff for all this time and all this money that we invested. And if there isn't one, I think oftentimes that starts to trigger certain frustrations. And so that's a long-winded answer, but I think it's complicated because I think parents start with the right intentions, but over time, sort of that cycle of investment leads them to expect more. How I try to deal with that is level set and calibrate often. What are the goals? Not just with parents, but with players. If the goals are character development, unselfishness, teamwork, having fun, then let's make sure we talk about those on a daily and weekly basis and say, are we doing that? Are we getting better? Are we having fun? Are we unselfish? Because that's what we want to do. So when these guys graduate St. Thomas, I hope they go on to play professional basketball. But whenever they stop playing basketball, which they are at some point in time, whenever they do, I want them to have a skill set that's going to allow them to flourish in other areas of life. Now that you are recruiting at the Division One level and seeing these AAU games from not the parent in it level, but the coach level, I guess it would be your sit was the lack of trust in coaching. I guess just how coaches can work with parents if they don't trust their coaching, they're playing them the right way or things like that. It's kind of like a nuanced thing player by player, but just the kind of 
take you out of the parent situation. Now you're on top more as a coach. As you just said that, I probably should have gone sub with trust and sit with the expectations, but I think they're combined together and oftentimes they play off one another. I think it's hard because a lot of parents don't know sports well, right? Nor should they. And particularly as you get to higher and higher levels, understanding division one recruiting and division one basketball, there's no reason that a parent would the same way I wouldn't understand what a CFO does in his daily work. And so I think, you know, a couple of things come to mind. One is parents teaching their children to communicate with them. And I'll give you an example because I've had lots of humbling ones as a parent. My oldest son, Jack, when he was 12, he was on a baseball team and he was a really good baseball player. And I just say that objectively, like he ended up quitting baseball and focusing on basketball. He was really good at baseball, but he didn't love it. Well, he comes home one day and he's like, I quit. Like, what do you mean you're going to quit? No, you're not going to quit. They're having me bat 14, which is another issue. Wait, hold on. I thought only nine players got to bat. Well, everybody gets to bat. Okay. So he's batting 14. He's not the 14th best player in this team. He's one of the top two kids on the team. So my immediate response is, what'd you do to piss the coach off? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you and I can both agree you're a good hitter. So if you're batting 14th, your coach is doing you a favor and sending you a message right now. Something you're doing is not along the lines of what they want. And he didn't want to hear it. So he comes back the next day. He's like, they batted me 14th again. I'm quitting. No, you're not. You go talk to them and ask them, why am I batting 14th? And ask it respectfully and figure it out. And so to be honest, it was a series of conversations with him that didn't have this smooth ending. I'd love to give you a Disney tale that they ended up winning the league championship. He hit a home run on the left. It didn't. It was a year of ups and downs, frankly. But to me, the only thing as a parent that mattered was that he understood you're not getting what you want. And there is a reason for that. You know, when we ask players, kids at camp, do coaches favor players? And they all say no, because they want to say the politically correct thing. Yes, we absolutely, we favor the good listeners. We favor the hard workers. We favor the guys that are coachable. We favor the guys that shoot well, pass well. Yes, we absolutely play favorites. And so getting kids to understand, like at some level, if you're not getting what you want on a team, figuring out now how to do that. And doesn't mean the coach is always right. I think it's important. And this is where trust comes back that if you trust the coach as well intention, some of it is figuring out what does your coach want? Because I say that to our players all the time. You want better things in life. Give your boss what he or she wants, right? My athletic director, he wants certain things for me. If I just go do whatever I want, that's not smart. My athletic director, VP of athletics, Bill Austin reports to our president. Well, what does the president want? The president reports to the board of trustees. And so in every organization, I think there's a model to teach young athletes that we all have bosses in life and we have to figure out what is it that they need from us on this day? Because what we need from a freshman at St. Thomas might be different than as a junior. And so we talk about that a lot, how your roles can evolve, but those roles, they tend to evolve organically. They don't usually evolve necessarily when kids want. You mentioned at the beginning, the number one email or question, you know, coaches get is playing time for their kids. What advice or just the response coaches should maybe get to diffuse that situation? Like you said, parents often don't really know the game well enough that you're going to go into like great tactical detail about why. This is one of the most complicated questions, because if you start with the premise that coaches, parents, kids all want sort of the same thing, right? If you ask them what they want, the kids want to have fun. They want to play. They want to win. They want to improve. Like those are pretty universal goals we can all agree on. Yet as you get older, it does get more competitive, right? And so, for example, if I'm watching a 17U AAU game and they're playing in the EYBL circuit and they're playing everybody equal time, well, I don't know if that's the right answer or not at that level. If a high school coach is playing people equal time at the varsity level, probably that's not what people expect. Now, a freshman team is probably going to be different. So I give those examples only to say coaches need to communicate with parents, right? 
early on and parents need to know what they're signing up for. So if you're signing up for an AAU program, understanding here's the playing time policy. Is that everybody plays, but you're going to play between 20 and 80% of the minutes. Is that across the season? Is it across the weekend? Because that's oftentimes where I see really big blowups are where there's miscommunications where a parent expected one thing, go back to the start, sub, or sit. Now we're back to the, what I said, sit or said, sub, and now I'm saying sit. The expectations though, if those are not accurate and everybody's not aligned on those expectations, that's when there become problems. And so I think early in the year, letting kids know like, hey, we got nine guys on this team. We're going to play everybody the amount of minutes you earn, but everybody's going to play some, right? Or you say, everybody's going to play equal minutes, whatever the policy as long as parents know what they're signing up for. And then I think it's incumbent on the parents to put the onus on their kids because at the end of the day, and this is, I'll try to gently say this sometimes to parents when they come to me sort of upset, is at what point are you going to allow or force or encourage your son or daughter to deal with their problems on their own? And I'm not telling you I have the answer, but none of them will say when the kid's 23 years old in a job interview, none of them. So then it better happen sometime ideally well before that, because the kid needs practice at it. If the kid just starts doing that at 22, it's not going to work very well. And so like most things in life, it's not a dichotomy, yes or no. It's more gradually, I think, as a parent, can you give a little more responsibility and accountability to your kid, but also let them know this is a gift. It's an opportunity for them to figure out things that they frankly aren't going to like it in that moment. But 10 or 15 years from now, they might come back and say thank you to their mom and dad because they learned how to talk through difficult situations with a coach, a boss, et cetera. All right, coach, thanks for sharing. Great answers there. Our next start subset, going back to the court, has to do with split cuts, split actions, and specifically the timing of it. So start, sub, or sit, the most important aspect to get in nailing the timing for the success of running a split cut, split screen. Is it the timing of the screen, the timing of the slip, when to slip, when to screen, or the timing when to pass? This is what I was afraid of coming on this show, guys. You know this, is ask me one of those questions that's almost unanswerable. <laughs> I think I'll sub the timing of the screen because while that's important, I think in this specific case, I think that can be a little delayed or a little botched. Even though I think the timing of the cut's important, I'm going to sit the timing of the screen, sub the timing of the cut, and start the timing of the pass. I knew you were going to stump me on one of these. The last one was nicer to me. Tell us about this thing you worked on for 15 years. <laughs> that was easier. So go ahead. Let's fire away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to start with your start, the timing of the pass. And what are you emphasizing? Why is that, in your opinion, so important when nailing the split cuts? I think first and foremost, it goes back to our predisposition to not wanting turnovers. And if you talk about the most egregious mistakes in each of those three examples you just gave us, timing of the screen, you can live to fight another day. The timing of the cut, you can live to fight another day. The passer screws up, the ball's out of bounds, or worse, it's a run out dunk for the other team. You can't. And so to me, that's why passing is so important because, it, you know, think about the NFL. They pay, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars to the best quarterbacks. And some of them are unbelievable throwing on the move, just like point guards in basketball. Others are more standstill passers. And we talk about that a lot. Like some of our best passers are not guards, but when they're standing still, they're incredible passers. They're not going to be doing it off the dribble on the move. And so to me, the start of the timing of the pass, some of it is what's going to lead to a basket, but some of it is just knowing, being judicious, and I'm not going to throw that pass. 
because of the timing of the cut and the screen gets screwed up, a really good passer is not going to throw the pass. And so I don't think we can live to fight another day with that. In terms of the timing of it, I think passing is a tough skill to teach because a lot of it is who anticipates things well, who sees broadly. So we talk more about concepts. We do passing drills every day, but I think we kind of go back and forth between kind of high rep passing drills. And then we talk about what do we teach, emphasize, and demand. And teaching passing is one thing, but I think emphasizing and demanding it where we actually like without threatening, but it's sort of like, if you can't pass, it's going to be hard for you to play here. You think about the best teams in the world, five unbelievably prodigiously talented scorers, none of whom are willing and able passers, they're going to be a disaster of an offensive team. Take five great passers and one of them is a really good score. Those five players are going to find a way to get great shots. And so honestly, I don't think we have any magic drills. I think we practice passing a lot. We talk about it a lot. We try to recruit good passers, but then we also try to get them to see that the passes they should make should be relatively conservative. So the number I use is 98.3%. We should complete 98.3% of our passes. When they're young and you're like, what percent of your passes should you complete? And they say 70. And then we go through the math. And if you make 300 passes a game, 60 possessions, five passes a possession, we complete 70% of them. That means we have 90 turnovers. We completed 210. I mean, you can't do it. So then they'll go to 90%. Well, that's still 30 turnovers. So 98.3 means we complete 295 out of 300 passes. And if we do that, and we're going to have a couple turnovers on live ball, dribbling, whatever, that gets into what do we emphasize? What do we demand? Passing anticipation. Is that a skill you can teach? Is that something you work on in your passing drills or is it more innate? Well, we do. I think some of it is just pointing out where their turnovers are coming from. Some of it is individual skill sessions or film sessions. Because I think if we're talking broadly about turnovers, it's trying to figure out what are the big buckets where certain guys, most guys have an Achilles heel, right? For some of it, it's just throwing risky passes. That's actually not that hard as long as he's coachable to kind of, hey, look at 80% of your turnovers have been passes that you just, you think they're good passes, they're 50-50. And the problem is a lot of the best players say, well, I know I can complete that pass, right? Sort of that unbridled confidence. And they're not wrong. They can complete it. They're just not going to complete it enough for it to be smart. I think some of his breakdown drills, like whatever sets or whatever offensive schema somebody runs, trying to create those situations in more stationary three-on-three drills where maybe a guy's at the wing and you've got a two-person screening action. And it's like getting them to see like, okay, if that cut's going to open up at the rim for a layup, it can't be that you see him and then you say, oh my God, he's open. And now the ball's over your head and you throw it. And suddenly it's a turnover. And he's like, I had him. He was open versus you catch it. And you know, this is the first cut I'm looking at. And if I see his lead hand, the ball's there. If not, I'm pass faking. And now my next read is there, right? And that's where I think quarterbacks in football are so incredible. Their progression of reads and sort of knowing I've got a 10th of a second and peripheral vision is important, but it's also, it's less peripheral vision and more about knowing what's next. And so I'm only going to look at this option for a snap and then I'm on to the next option. And if that's taken away, what's next? And so getting, you know, in many ways, it's like playing chess, right? If you play chess, you got to think a few moves ahead and it's hard to do in chess. I'm not a very good chess player. It's really hard to do when you're playing a sport where you're sprinting up and down and sometimes you're on defense, sometimes you're on offense. And so, you know, that's, I think, how we try to do it. My last follow-up in all this to kind of paint a picture for people listening, we're talking about maybe some kind of action where we're hitting a player at the elbow and then running some kind of pin down screen or something like that. And I think a question I know we get a lot and we talk about a lot is just the relationship between screening versus slipping any of those actions and teaching players when to do that, basically, in that relationship. And I guess as you taught it, how you think about when they should try to screen versus when they should slip into space, things like that early on for players. 
And I think off-ball and on-ball are slightly different, right? And you think about bigs that it can pick and pop and pick and roll and ghosting screens and getting mismatches. Some of that, again, it's a decision tree. This is a huge part of coaching is getting young players to understand, like, no matter what you like to do, right? A pick and pop big who wants to shoot threes, well, we all know he's not very valuable if he picks and pops 100% of the time. Because now teams are going to switch and he's now a very average, probably perimeter player. He's real elite when he's got a six foot 10 guy chasing him around or he posts a six, two guard. But if he's just a perimeter player, and that's what I usually ask those types of post players is if you're just a perimeter player, hundred percent of the time, how do you stack up on our team and the other eight perimeter players? And they'll usually be honest and be like, well, I'm not as quick. Correct. So if they switch and you don't punish them, then they're going to switch every time and you're a perimeter player and you're not good. And then we'll play five perimeter players. With the example you're given, Dan, I think probably a couple of things. One would be air on the side of setting screens, particularly early in games. Right now, you might have a set you're running early in a game to get a layup, but I think slipping too much becomes easier to guard. So number one, air on the side of let's use the screen and be physical and tough. Because like a lot of things in life, that's going to set something up for later, right? But get the other team used to defending tough curls, for example, and then later we can slip. The second would be creating indecision. I think we talk about that a lot with our guys, whether you have the ball and you're using shot fakes and pivots, but also on your screen, just have an act, create indecision. And when you see indecision, that's where I want our guys to play freely that every slip you make doesn't have to lead to a back cut layup. In fact, it won't. And so when you see a little indecision, that's where you should cut. But then when you cut, cut viciously, cut definitively, like you can't dance on a cut. And oftentimes we'll see that, right? Where a guy will go one way, zigzag and back and forth. And that's always wrong. And so, because number one, you're bogging down the offense. Number two, our spacing is bad. Number three, you're also going to confuse the passer where that's where turnovers happen a lot. So a passer really needs to know like, Hey, if this guy slips, he's going all the way to the basket. He's trying to get a layup. Now it's incumbent on the passer. Do I throw it or not? So I want our guys to play free, but I also want them to have a clear idea of, okay, if this, then that, if this, then that. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for going through all that stuff with us. And those were great answers. We appreciate you doing that. Thank you. It was getting warm there for a minute. <laughs> for sure. Really enjoyed that. So We've got one last question for you before we close. Before we do, this was really, really fun for us. Congrats to you on all the success. And thank you very much for coming on the show today. Hey, you guys are phenomenal. Been a pleasure. We'll finish with this question we ask all the guests at the end here is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Yeah, I've had an interesting journey when you combine the psychology. And I also, I taught full-time. So my first gig at St. Thomas, I was a full-time social psych professor for 11 years and the assistant basketball coach. And when I think back, that's a unique path, right? There are a lot of guys that were doing grad assistantships early in their career, video jobs. And so I think really when I holistically look at it, and I'm going to answer this as a social psychologist more than a coach, is been choosing environments and people that are going to help me be a better person, a better coach, a better parent. That's a broad answer, but I grew up, I had two of the most loving parents ever. And so I was lucky there, very fortunate and blessed. They chose good schools for me. I chose St. Thomas. So in social psych, we talk about you become what you do. So cognitive dissonance I alluded to earlier, be careful. There's a slippery slope in life. Somebody starts stealing a bag of Skittles when they're a kid. It's going to be easier to steal something bigger a year later and a year later and a year later. Usually when people rob a bank, it's not the first time they've stolen something. And so the flip side of that is, We become what we do. We become who we spend time with. And so my answer to you would be, I've been fortunate and I think also selective at 
being back at St. Thomas, this is an unbelievable school with the mission, the history. I'm obviously biased, but I've been here for as long as I have because of that. Recruiting players and hiring assistant coaches that have the same values as I do. So I always start with passion, loyalty, knowledge, honesty, those four things. I want to be surrounded by people like that. And then I look at my family, my kids, Jack, Adam, RQ, and Issa, my wife, Chansey, who founded a charter school here in the Twin Cities. They're to me, surrounding myself with people at St. Thomas and in my family. And some of that has been blind genetic luck, right, in terms of family members. But some of it has also been very intentional. And I think those are the things. And then, you know, obviously I had mentors in coaching, but even mentors, like I played for a guy who was an assistant coach. He was the AD when I was the head coach, Steve Fritz. He's been phenomenal in my life, but I also went out and learned from a lot of other coaches. Yet at the end of the day, what's really the foundation for any young coach? When I give them advice, it's find a program, an institution, whether it's a high school, a college, professional team, find an institution you believe in the mission and find a head coach that you say, I want to be around this person because he or she is going to make me better. And I feel the same way about head coaches. When you're looking for a job, find an institution where you believe in the mission Find a boss, an administration team, the athletic director, president that you really trust. And so when I look at people who have been really successful in life, there tends to be a continuity and a longevity to their culture. And that's because the mission binds people together and people are bought into that mission. And I've been really fortunate. St. Thomas is a special place. So I've been honored to be here. And hopefully they think like I've added a little bit along the way as well. All right, Pat, so much in here about motivation and teams and parenting, split cuts. I mean, we're going to touch on it all briefly, but I'll just throw it back to you to start on just anything that sticks out right away for you. Yeah, my first impression is this conversation really reminded me a lot of the conversation we had with Julie Folks in the terms of just these coaches with high education backgrounds. And I just enjoy the unique perspective that it brings to how they coach and, of course, how they view culture, how they view obviously with Coach Tower, motivation and building teams. So that was my overarching takeaway. Just I really enjoy these high education background coaches and their approach to coaching and the conversations that we have with them. I really like what you said about Julie Folks and similarities between her background and what Coach Tower is doing and how they kind of speak and think about the game. And what I think I took from him as well, and this is what Coach Folks also did well at, is even though they're both, say, quantitative thinkers as far as they like to study the analytics and the metrics. And he talked about his math background. They also had this understanding of that when you are dealing with people, you have to know when to kind of leave that out or to funnel that into things that are just helpful for you personally or make decisions, but then how good you have to be in motivating people and whatnot, that it has to have the human element to it. And, you know, players aren't that overly motivated by you showing them shot charts and stats as much as they are this other part of human interaction i think like he talked about and has a good understanding of that is like they use numbers he loves it but also there has to be this other side when you're trying to really build a culture and he went through kind of their pillars real quickly but that was one thing that stood out and the similarities i found too with those two coaches i wrote that down too when discussing goals and measuring goals and the individual goals was the team goals and he said he really tries to avoid quantifiable measurements because i mean i think he said it kind of it breeds players being a little bit more selfish or putting anxiety on the players like he said the shooter maybe dips and then he's trying to press or the guy just points but yeah or with the team goals 
saying to them how many turnovers we are. I think it puts on this pressure, this unnecessary anxiety and more talking about like, are we growing? Are we playing with effort, like doing the right things, you know, like with all the good coaching, like getting it back to their culture pillars and not so much worrying, stressing or overemphasizing the numbers, which is interesting tying it back to what you said, because I think he does think a lot about these things. And when he was talking about the passing anticipation, they want to complete 98.3% of their passes because of just breaking down if over 300 passing game that leads to a proper amount of turnovers, you know, or a reasonable amount that they can win and not, like he said, 100 turnovers or 30 turnovers. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess one more just piece that I liked in there was just how he talked about, you know, really some of the foundations of a coach is their team builders and their teachers talk about some of the similarities and differences. But when it comes down to it, I liked how he spoke about the complexity of motivation. Now kind of hit on this for a second, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, and then individual versus team and how you kind of handle this. And what I think came through is, I mean, he spoke so well on it. He's written about it and he studied it, but just that it's so complex, like it's just a constantly evolving process and that there's not just a copy and paste one way to do it because every year the players are different. The season is different. Everything is different. It's different every day. I think that's probably why so many of us, anybody still listening this deep into the podcast love about the game is that when you walk into the gym every day, like it's different than it was the day before. There's nothing that's rinse and repeat. and when it comes to building a team, like you talked about, just you have to adapt. If I remember correctly, he said, you know, it can get boring or maybe it was over-exaggerating, but teaching pick and roll defense, you know, can get the same. It's going to yeah. be a little, he knows it every year we're doing it, but versus like, yeah, like you said, the culture the team building, it's something that every day is alive, changing, as you said. And I just like his perspective on the things too, that maybe even teaching basketball on the court, while we all love it, we talk about it all the time. The true kind of challenge and never evolving thing is your culture and the people you deal with. And you can tell that gets him excited. I think he loves the challenge of it. Yeah, hundred percent. I think we obviously love talking tactical X's and O's, but I think you truly understand that the best parts of coaching is not those things. And it's what brings the most meaning and value to coaches for sure is beyond that stuff and also for players as well beyond just the tactical parts building all those things on a side note too i think that's why not within this conversation but why coaches too will also change their tactics just to kind of reinvigorate them as well at times sure let's just press this year i want to try it you know i mean obviously they think can give them success but i think to also stimulate their teaching and them as a coach absolutely good side note there i think it kind of ties in so maybe we'll go start sub sit for a second and actually like to talk about the tactical stuff first with you beforehand we were talking about watching his teams in the past like they've run great stuff i know he talked about playing up tempo shooting a lot of threes but also you know when i've watched them they've been really good cutting teams and playing through some elbow action and things like that good to hear his thoughts on just that dance of those three players and cuts and passes and timing and trying to teach it i really enjoyed hearing him talk about that same here. And when his start was his passing, and it all made a lot of sense because throughout even the first portion, he emphasized just turnovers and the role it plays and how they want to avoid it and how they want to recruit great passers. So, and when we got in the conversation about passing anticipation, drilling it, trying to give these guys reads or progressions and comparing them to standstill quarterback versus the quarterback on the move. So, just enjoyed his thoughts on the passing and kind of get an inside how what he thinks about it, how he views it and, and why it is so important. Because he said with 
the screening, the slipping, if the timing's a little messed up, you can correct it, you can fix it, or you can, of course, always move on. But if you start messing up the passing, that's where it's going to lead to his turnovers, which is obviously something that everyone wants to avoid. So like, those are kind of, that's why I would start because like, those are the mistakes you can't really come back from at times. Just to add to your point, I mean, the overall thread throughout this conversation, you can really tell the key fundamentals, obviously, is not turning the ball over for his program. And though we all don't want that, I mean, you can tell it's just emphasizing everything. And with this kind of split action, 100% of the time, your first four or five practices of the year, you throw it to that big man and he's going to try to thread a back door yeah. when it's not there or something. And, you know, you do have to realize, so I agree with him in this sense of his start of not overpassing not trying to thread stuff or just getting that feel and sometimes they got to try to throw those passes in practice to feel what it's like and to get the timing i get it but i think for him it's the most valuable thing is the ball so it's got to be there and if it's not we'll get to some other action and so just kind of working with your big on the timing and when to throw it i think he spoke well on as also too he followed up with kind of slipping versus setting screens and how he prefers maybe to start with actually setting good screens so they're tougher to play against. I like that too. Bringing back that 98.3% completion rate. And I got the impression it's something he tells his players, be 98.3% sure. I always like with these conversations, these trigger words, these sayings that coaches use, I think it helps a lot in teaching and building what you want into your program. And for me, I just really like the 98.3. It's something maybe that would stick with me rather Maybe I want you to be 99% sure, which is a little bit more cliche. And But if it's like 98.3, I think it's more of a, for whatever reason, like trigger, because it is a super specific number. But, I mean, I'm sure he explains it to the players, of course. Right. But yeah, I mean, versus saying 99%, which maybe it's like, all right, you know, coach talk, coach talk in one air out. But it's like 98.3. It's like, okay, you're right. We know why. I like that. 100%. This second question for Start Subset, he wrote a book on this. And so in our research and all that's like, we got to ask him something about this. And also because it's something that's so prevalent in all the different levels. We were just in coming up with this question, trying to figure out, I mean, we've all dealt with probably most of us, the parent that's just over the top. And we got into how you handle it a little bit, but I think it was interesting to explore with him, like why the parent gets that way in his research and what's really, really behind it. And in his opinion, I love the start, which is just the love of your child and you know i get it but how that can cloud your thinking and things like that and so anyway it was nice to hear him talk about this question obviously but then his work with why parents get to the point that they get to and i enjoyed when he started talking about time and money and kind of understanding the parents point of view like how much time they're putting in of course how much money and how that all adds up and how gradually they can probably become this over-involved parent and as a coach you know because i think it was in your question follow-up is how as a coach can we kind of help or deal with these parents? With everything, it starts from understanding, understanding your players, understanding the parents, their reasoning. And over the course of years, months, the time and money that they're all putting in and they want the best for their kid. And so it's just understanding this and trying to work with them and that and you know where they're coming from. 100%. And I think coaches probably think about that on the other side when they're dealing with parents that are problem parents. They're spending too much time dealing with this problem for not enough money yeah. <laughs> as well um, from, from the coaching side. So it's a two-way street at times. The other point I enjoyed, we understand it. it's difficult when the parent is over-involved, but just depriving children of what he said, paying for children to work through. Sports is a good avenue for this or a good tool to give your child some pain, work through adversity early on. And I think he said in a safe, controlled environment versus, you know, the first time it's when they're 23 at a job interview. Yeah. And he also 
mentioned within there too another nugget about when you drop the kid off to go play a game you say hey have fun and then the first question you ask when they get in the car after is how'd you do how much did you score yeah not did you have fun yeah and you and i were talking briefly before we hopped on here it's like very similar a lot of things in i guess society where you go to school it's like hey go learn go grow but then at the end of it like well what were your grades and we don't have a fix for that at the back end of the podcast here but it is an interesting thing where yeah in some point it goes from the core values or core beliefs of just having fun and growing to like well what did you do and i don't know if that's completely fixable but just maybe as a coach recognizing you know those things are taking place yeah the contradictions that are occurring at times yeah and then the ever present thing for coaches especially college and up of what you also do have to win to keep jobs and promote like so that's there too within all of it so it's definitely a complex thing but it was a really fun question to ask him and detail his thoughts moving on something i would have loved to dive in deeper on as we went through there's a couple things but my main one was he kind of touched on it and you hit on it but in the first bucket him talking about losing and how that kind of affected him that first year and I would have loved to ask maybe a couple follow-ups for him personally as a coach, the growth from that year D3 to D1. I mean, they're winning all the time at D3, and then all of a sudden you're going in a situation where you're losing more, and it's almost like expected you're going to lose more if you kind of take an outside look because of that big leap. And just how he handled that and has learned to handle that and grow as a coach. And he did talk about a little bit, but I just, for me, could have Definitely talk to him another 10, 15 minutes about that growth in that kind of area of the game. For me, it was within that first bucket. I had two misses that I would have liked to have asked about when we're talking about motivation. He mentioned, you know, you always have like the most talented player, but the least motivated. And why do we see that? What is it? Not the science behind it, but knowing he studied it, like what he's kind of seen there. And then when we talked about, he always likes to recruit it, trying to recruit it and recruit players. I've really been interested lately. And, you know, I know you'll, see them play. You can, he said the joy in their face and you talk to coaches, you know, that coach them. But when you get them on calls, what questions he asks maybe to explore or find out if this is a player who's intrinsically motivated or what he is intrinsically motivated about. I would have liked to have followed up with talking about recruiting. For sure. So once again, always a pleasure for us. And we wish Coach Tower a lot of success. And like I said, he made some time for us in between his busy summer schedule. So we thank him. Pat, if there's nothing else, we can start wrapping this up. Yep. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good. Let's roll <laughs> slapping glass.